Good evening. Good evening, everyone, and uh, welcome to Calvary Chapel. Just to note before we begin, the glasses are not an attempt to fool you into thinking Pastor Tim is up here. They're actual vision problems, so. But good evening, everyone, and welcome. First, I want to thank Anthony for his wonderful melodies and uh, leading us in worship. And I want to thank uh, Pastor Tim for the opportunity uh, to share the word with you all tonight and for bringing a group of men through a mentoring program that has been a huge blessing to us all. I must confess I'm feeling a little anxious. Of course, spiritual speaking, there's anxiety because anytime you preach, you want to represent the Word of God accurately in a way that is pleasing to Him. However, there is also a part of me that is nervous for a very different reason. Some of you may know that when I'm up here normally, it's as a worship leader. Some of you may also know that I am a songwriter as well. So the fear that ran through my mind as I was preparing this message was that as a singer-songwriter, I've usually exhausted my best material in about three to four minutes. So I find myself aiming for quite a bit more than that. Not, not too much. You're not going to be here till midnight. Don't worry. But that being said, please pray for me. In tonight's study, we'll be looking at weakness. Now, I know that's not exactly a popular topic these days. Take one look at social media and you'll see what I mean. We are constantly bombarded on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and who knows what else is out there, with people's best. Now, I'm a big fitness enthusiast, and I think I'm in pretty good shape But when I look at Instagram and see those mountains of meat flexing and benching and squatting 800 pounds, suddenly I feel like I got pipe cleaners for arms. Now, fitness is one thing, but how many of us have found ourselves looking at even our friends and family's Facebook posts, vacation photos, family photos, and just wondering, how do they have it so good? Why isn't their life a mess like mine? Why don't they have a playroom full of a minefield of Legos like me? That's just a confession. That's my son. We seem to have this need to appear like we have it all together. Like everything is under control, but often that's not the reality, is it? I know it's not for me anyway. Now, speaking of outside of reality, look at Hollywood. And the rest of the entertainment industry, the red carpets, the galas, the glamour, everyone looks so perfect that we can't help but become a little bit jealous that our own lives seem so not that. We constantly hear about strong men and strong women, even more these days about strong women, and we fall into comparing ourselves, our bodies, our possessions, our lifestyles, and with what, in many cases, is just a facade. Now, sure, there will be times where we are feeling good and everything is going well, and we absolutely praise God for those moments. However, brothers and sisters, we live in a fallen world full of sickness, disease, stress, a whole host of problems that we just don't have time to get into tonight. And when we look at ourselves compared to 
God? Weakness is our default setting, and it's only a matter of time before the walls we put up to show our strength start to crack and that weakness floods through. And if our eyes aren't fixed on Jesus, we very well could drown in that flood. So tonight, we're going to see that God turns this idea of weakness on its head. We're going to see that it's actually in our lowest moments that God works and demonstrates his incredible grace most powerfully. If you would, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll be starting in the latter half of verse 7. Now, as you're turning there, a little background, the Apostle Paul has been writing about how 14 years prior, he was taken up into heaven, possibly in body, possibly in a vision. There he saw and heard things that he described as inexpressible, things he was not even permitted to tell, which for me does call into question those current individuals who claim to have heavenly visitations. There was actually one such woman who was being interviewed, and I was watching on uh, YouTube, of all places. And I kid you not, she was relating that she often visits a section of heaven called Christmas Town. And it snows there all the time. Santa Claus lives there. And the houses are made of ever-regenerating candy. I don't know about you, but I think she's making that up. Now, Paul, on the other hand, had a wonderful, actual visit to heaven. What must have been a true mountaintop experience. He got to see glory, and when we look outside in comparison with what our world looks like today, is anybody, would anybody sign up for a glimpse at heaven? Yeah, I know I would. And yet, after this incredible experience, after this event, something happens that really changes the tone of the passage. Let's read in verse 7 where Paul writes, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong." Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father God, at first this seems like such a simple passage. However, to anyone who has suffered or is currently suffering, it can get wrapped up in so much emotion and confusion, creating more questions than answers. Help us as we examine this idea of your grace being sufficient through suffering and your power made perfect in weakness to discover your truth about them and what they mean, not just in Paul's life, but in ours as well. May you be glorified in what is discussed here tonight, and your truth go out in power to encourage, convict, and bring us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Years ago, there was a man from the former Soviet Union named Dmitri, who had become a believer in Christ. After his conversion, he eventually became the pastor of a secret underground church. Things had been going well, and the church was growing, until, unfortunately, the communist officials found out what was going on and burst through his door. Dmitri was arrested, separated from his wife and children, and taken to a prison over 600 miles away. This place was filled to the brim with over 1,500 of the worst criminals imaginable. This place would be where Dimitri would spend the next 17 years of his life. However, Dimitri tried to stay true to Christ. Each day he would faithfully and meticulously write Bible verses, stories, and songs on any piece of paper he could find. He would then stick them to the wall of his prison cell as encouragement for his soul. And each day, the prison guards would see his writings, come into his cell, tear them up, and mercilessly beat him. Talk about a thorn in the flesh, right? Yet still, he remained faithful. He also began every morning by waking up, standing at the bars of his cell, raising his hands high and singing songs of praise to Jesus. During these songs, many of the prisoners hurled insults, trash, curses, and even human waste in his direction. Those who weren't as close clanged their metal cups on the bars of their cell to drown out his singing. However, through all the beatings, all the mistreatment, he would not cease to write, and he would not cease to sing. The guards had told him he could go free and be with his family if he simply did one thing. Signed papers denying Christ and saying that he was a Western spy trying to bring down the government. Yet in spite of this promise of freedom, the harsh treatment from the guards and ridicule from fellow inmates, he continually refused to sign. What strength, right? What faith and determination. Dimitri simply refused to break in the face of relentless persecution. Until. One day the guards had enough of his writing, enough of his singing, enough of this Christian defiance. They decided that it was time to crush him. They took a random woman and dressed her in a way that would fool Dimitri into thinking that she was his wife. They covered her face so she could not be seen. They led her right past his cell. And then, out of sight, but not out of his hearing, proceeded to repeatedly torture, abuse her. And eventually, a shot rang out and echoed throughout the prison. Dimitri watched helplessly as they dragged that woman, her lifeless body, back past his cell. And finally, he broke. In despair and anguish, he told the guards that he would sign any papers that they brought to him. To Dimitri, as he lay in his bed that night, his wife was murdered, his children were alone, and his faith was in shambles. Where was God? 
Where was his mercy and grace on this man who every day in that prison had strived to be faithful? Where was God's power made perfect in this man's obvious weakness? These are questions most likely have crossed the minds of many throughout the centuries, questions that plague many of us to this day, whether you're a Christian or not. In fact, I remember asking a lot of these questions myself a few years ago. In June 2020, Lindsay and I welcomed our third child, Joshua, into the world. Things were going well for both of us after my wife had experienced severe postpartum depression after our first child was born, our daughter, and more mental health issues after our son Elijah was born, necessitating inpatient hospital stays both times. I also had struggled with mental health issues after Elijah was born. We were both so ecstatic that we were doing well after Joshua had come. Until September hit. Lindsay was unexpectedly diagnosed with stage 3 colon cancer. Shortly after that, in October, she began struggling with mental health issues again, and it got so bad that she had to be hospitalized for the third time. Unfortunately, at every turn, it seemed like my wife and her mental health were being mishandled because the medical field was so busy being caught up in COVID panic that they forgot about patient care, and I'm sure some of you experience that yourselves. This led to two inpatient stays at two different hospitals, wrong medications being administered, and several emergency room visits. And we all felt completely helpless. For me, the anxiety began to mount as her necessary surgery for an advanced cancer kept getting delayed again and again, because we had to take care of her mental health first before going for further. I felt a constant race against time to get the cancer out before it spread too far. Finally, Lindsay was able to get to the point where doctors performed successful surgery in December. And yet, after several weeks of recovery, she was scheduled to start six months of chemo near the end of January to make sure any residual cancer was eliminated. Praise God, Lindsay's mental health noticeably began to improve about a week and a half before that treatment because we would never have made it through if it had not. We knew it wasn't going to be easy, but that turned out to be an understatement. At the end of her first treatment, Lindsay got very sick because scar tissue from the first surgery had caused her small intestine to tie itself in a knot. For days, she lay in her hospital bed, restricted from eating, tubes and IVs everywhere, waiting and praying that it would resolve on its own. However, it was not to be, and she required a second, more invasive surgery to correct it. While it was successful, we looked at yet another round of recovery before we could continue treatment. By now, it was the middle of February, and there was still more trouble to come. Lindsay became sick again, and it was severely affecting her breathing. Now, naturally, with her being immunocompromised and at the height of COVID, we feared the worst, what that could mean. And so we went back to the hospital yet again, which required 
another emergency room stay, and another hospitalization. And while it didn't end up being COVID, she had developed an infection as a result of the second surgery, which had filled her body cavity with enough fluid to collapse her left lung. Now, the only way to relieve the pressure on her lung was a third surgery to drain it. She spent nearly the whole month of February in pain, in bed, and in pandemic-induced isolation in the hospital because visiting was extremely restricted, away, might I, might I add, from her, two, her children and her newborn. Now, while all of this was happening, we were living with my parents. I was raising and sleep training a newborn, which was my first experience, even though it was our third child, and no more children after that, <laughs> please. I was trying to help our daughter through school, organizing and keeping track of Elijah's virtual instruction, which, if any of you parents had kids in school at that time, how much of a nightmare was that? Yeah. And we were constantly on the phone with doctors, counselors, mental health professionals, caring for Lindsay when she actually was home, and basically in physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual shambles. Our relationships were suffering. There was tension amongst the family, and everything seemed to be falling apart due to the stress. Admittedly, I was almost constantly worried about whether or not we would lose Lindsay. Finally, after she came home and recovered from her third surgery, she had to restart the six months of chemotherapy, during which we all actually contracted COVID. Everybody except my son Elijah, who remained Superman until about this past year. But again I ask, where was God? Where was his love? Where was his mercy on us, who had tried to be faithful? Where was his sufficient grace and God's power made perfect in our weakness? Now I've relayed these two stories to you and left you hanging with the same questions for both of them. You may be saying to yourself right about now, wow, I'm so glad I came out to be encouraged at Bible study tonight. So where is this going? What is the answer to these questions? What do you do when you're screaming at the top of your lungs for an answer to suffering that you can't explain? That you have done nothing to deserve? And the only response you seem to be getting is the very echo of your own screams. What do you do when life turns into a fiery furnace and instead of the angel of God standing next to you in that fire, you feel like you are burning alone? But look again at verse 7 in chapter 12. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Paul doesn't say that the messenger of Satan was a minor bother to him or somewhat of an inconvenience. He uses the word torment, which in the Greek is kalafidso, and literally means to strike with the fist, especially the knuckles, in order to crush 
or to strike with something so sharp that it sticks painfully in the flesh. He felt he was being crushed, so he prayed for his torment to be taken away. I know I prayed over and over again that God would take everything away, that Lindsay would be healed, that our struggles would end, that we could finally experience peace. And I'm sure in our earlier story, Dimitri prayed every day that God would deliver him from that prison, reunite him with his family, and he could go back to his church, go back to peace. And I'm sure many of you have been in that same position where you've been desperately crying out to God for help, for answers, and for relief. Even Paul, in verse 8 of our passage, says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Now, although we don't find out what the thorn in the flesh is, what is more important to highlight is that Paul, champion of the Christian faith, was pleading. He couldn't take it anymore. He was done. He was begging to the point of exhaustion that God would take away his suffering. And when I hear where Paul was at mentally and physically, I don't know about you, but in a way it kind of brings me comfort. And there's a couple of key points I take away from his example. The first is that it is okay to plead with God. It's not a sin to be at the point of desperation. God isn't going to punish us because we're unable to stand there, chest out, chin up in unbreakable faith as the flaming arrows of Satan bounce off the S on our chest. <laughs> Take that evil doer. No. God isn't going to turn his back on us because we don't understand what's going on and just want our troubles to end. Even Job, the man who may have suffered more than any person ever has on this earth, questioned why and yet remained blameless. It's okay to ask God questions. It's only when we start blaming God for our struggles and cursing him that we venture into sin. Second, and possibly the most frustrating thing for me, and maybe for you as well, is that God isn't always going to answer the first time we pray. It may happen sometimes, but it seems to be on the rare side. For Paul, it took three times. For others, it takes months. For others, years of fervent prayer. Can I confess to you how ready I am to give up after that first prayer goes unanswered. So quickly I throw up my hands and conclude that I prayed, God was silent, I'm abandoned. Even though I know that God's timing is not mine, even though I've heard story after story of God answering prayer, even though I've heard and I know that Scripture encourages me to pray without ceasing, and that leads us to the third point. God will answer, and I hope that's encouraging. God will answer, but it's in his time. And when he does, it will be the perfect time. It will be when his will is accomplished. That's a tough pill to swallow. 
When Lindsay was battling mental illness, when she was diagnosed with cancer, I wanted her healed that very same day. After all, God, how amazed would the doctors be if they saw the tumor the one second, and then poof, it was gone. Wow, they'd fall to their knees. They'd give up medicine. They'd become missionaries. Doesn't that sound wonderful, God? Can't we go with my plan? As I'm sure many of you know, that's not often how God works. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And his ways are not our ways, but they're better. He sees the beginning from the end and knows what the future holds. Paul in Romans 8 encourages us in this when he writes, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. If we are in Christ, if we love him and are called by him according to his purpose, not ours, then he is working all things. All things? Yes, all things, including joy and sorrow, including victory and defeat, healing and suffering, triumph and trial for our good. For Paul... The thorn in the flesh was given to him. Why? So he wouldn't become conceited. So he wouldn't become proud. How easy would it have been to start boasting about what God had allowed him to see in heaven and gain intention for himself because of it? In fact, people like the woman I spoke of earlier gain massive followings and others sell millions of books by doing that very thing. Imagine the havoc pride would have wreaked on Paul's ministering of the gospel. Now, is keeping us from pride always the reason for our trials and suffering? Is our own personal sin always the reason for the things that we go through? Was it the reason for the host of other things that Paul experienced that we'll go into in a little bit? I'm not so sure of that. But it was for the thorn in the flesh Now, I don't pretend to know the answer to why you or I or any of us suffer. We've seen a lot of trouble come from that in our current study in Job. That's not my purpose here tonight. The purpose of these stories that I've told you is not to point to Paul's or Dimitri's or our own strength or marvel at how we got through chaotic times. To the contrary, it's to hammer home just what Paul was trying to convey in our passage. How weak we as humans can get and how that weakness can actually be a testimony to God's grace. His faithfulness and his power. Whether we can see it or not, feel it or not, believe it or not, like it or not. His mercy and his power are most present when we are being pressed, when we are being persecuted, when we are at our very wit's end, because then it is clear that we have no power and that it must be God who gets us through. Simply look at the life of Paul, who just a chapter earlier 
in 2 Corinthians 11, separates himself from the false prophets in Corinth who were leading people astray by preaching a false gospel and a different Jesus. He answers their criticisms about his legitimacy as an apostle by writing a list of sufferings and hardships that would make Arnold Schwarzenegger's knees shake. Turn back, if you haven't already, to 2 Corinthians 11, and look starting in the latter half of verse 23. Paul writes, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled, and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak, and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin, and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Look at that list of trials Paul has there. Being whipped for nearly 200 lashes. Being beaten with rods. Being stoned. It must have left his body permanently covered in scars. Possible disfigurement. Experiencing the trauma of one shipwreck might be enough, but three? Imagine that feeling of floating on the open ocean, clutching to broken pieces of a, pieces of a ship for an entire day and an entire night. Imagine being constantly hungry, tired, thirsty, and under unending stress, and no, I'm not just talking to the parents of young children here. Thank God for Calvary kids, right? Yet Paul ends this passage by saying that he will boast of the things that show his weakness. For what purpose? That is revealed in chapter 12. If you would turn back to chapter 12 and look in verse 9. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Why? So that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul recognizes that when he is weak, it is Jesus' power and grace that takes center stage. 
As the apostle states in his, later, in his letter to the Galatians, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Now this power and grace has a twofold purpose. First, it encourages and sustains the one going through the trial, bringing him or her closer to Christ. Now this is seen throughout Paul's life, his dramatic conversion when he actually heard the voice of the risen Christ on the Damascus Road, the earthquake that shook his prison doors wide open and led to the jailer and his whole family being saved, the heavenly messenger that appeared to him on a storm-tossed ship to encourage him that he would in fact reach Rome despite the upcoming shipwreck with no loss of life, being taken up into heaven. No wonder Paul concluded, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Secondly, the purpose of this power and grace is to be a witness and testimony of Christ to those around us. A witness and testimony to both encourage the saints and bring the unsaved to Jesus. Paul's ministry had legitimacy because of all that he endured, and he went on to become God's instrument in bringing the gospel to much of the Mediterranean world. It is especially with this second purpose in mind that we return to our friend Dimitri. After telling the guards that he would sign their papers, that night, as he slept, he heard the voices of his wife, his brother, and his children praying for him. Never once in the past 17 years in the prison had this or anything like it happened. No other message from God, no divine intervention. But now, at his weakest, when he was for all intents and purposes finished. This glimpse into the truth that his wife and children were alive and well gave him such confidence that when the guards brought the papers to sign the next morning, he told them he wasn't signing anything. And he threw them out of his cell. And from that day on, he sang all the more. And the guards could do nothing to change his mind. Seeing no other option, the order came for his execution by firing squad. They brought Dimitri out of his cell and led him down the hallway toward the door that led to the firing post. However, before they could get him outside, they began to notice that all the prisoners in the block were coming to the, cells of the, to the doors of their cells. Were they going to take one last opportunity to throw things at Dimitri? Were they going to mock him one last time as he walked out to his death? No. To a man, they stood at their doors, raised their hands up high, and began singing the exact same songs of praise that Dimitri had for all those years. The guards, who had day after day witnessed these inmates, these same inmates, treat Dimitri horribly, backed away from him in astonishment and fear. And they asked him, Who are you? 
Dimitri turned to them and he said, I am the son of the living God, and Jesus is his name. Shortly after this event, Dimitri was set free and reunited with his family. And years later, his son would become the chaplain for that same prison, ministering and proclaiming the gospel to the inmates there. Where was God? Where was his mercy and grace on this man who strived to be faithful every day? Where was God's power made perfect in his weakness? All it takes is one look at the end of that story to know that even though God seemed silent for 17 years, though God seemed silent when Dimitri thought his wife murdered, though God seemed so silent that Dimitri was ready to deny his Savior, God was working the whole time. Working on Dimitri, working on the guards, working on the hearts of every single one of those hardened criminals so that when God's perfect time came, the power of Jesus Christ would be revealed and on full display to change lives and bring many to salvation. Amen. This causes me to reflect on my own story, and I can tell you that though God seemed silent, Though he seemed absent through all the mental health scares, the cancer, the stress, the surgeries, the hospital stays, our family falling apart, he was working the whole time to prepare, to strengthen, to encourage, and to demonstrate his grace and his power in our weakness. Though I couldn't see it then, I can reflect back with clear vision now and see exactly where he was. It was by his grace that the cancer was found when it was still operable and treatable. It was in his provision that we had incredible doctors that were compassionate and did all they could to help and encourage us. He provided us with family and friends all over the country who encouraged and prayed for us daily. He provided parents who opened their home to us at a moment's notice when we were in crisis, never kicking us out, though I'm sure they wanted to, because it got impossible at times. His foresight led us to jobs that we could both take extended leaves of absence from and still have a job to come back to. Jobs with insurance that turned well over a million dollars in hospital bills to a couple hundred. He provided us with my brother Bill and his wife Natalie, who were willing, in the middle of sleep training, to take Joshua for a couple of nights when all I needed was, a good, was some sleep because I was exhausted. And I think of Natalie reaching out to mom's groups and getting oh, an overwhelming response from generous donors who kept delivering breast milk sure that's not a word you thought you'd hear in this night's sermon, was it? <clears throat> week after week, making sure that even though Lindsay had to stop breastfeeding Joshua after only four months, he had enough milk to last him his entire first year of life. I look at the community of this church and the support that we received through meal trains and just prayer and encouragement as one of the reasons that we survived this time. It's funny. 
But going back even further, I see the events that even brought us to this church as God's provision and preparation. Out of the blue one day, our middle son Elijah asked if we could visit Uncle Bill and Aunt Natalie's church. Figuring there would be no harm, we said, sure, why not? That first Sunday, Lindsay and I both felt that this was where God was calling us to be. We returned the next Sunday, and the next, and the next, and have been coming back ever since. And yet, I can see that God knew exactly when to move us here. He knew what was coming, because he is sovereign, amen? He moved us in just enough time to get settled, start developing community, and begin growing in our faith again before everything went south. What I find most incredible, and you will never be able to convince me otherwise, was that he decided, the way God decided to speak to us was through a four-year-old, my four-year-old son, and I pray that he someday comes to realize just how amazing that is. Of course, he didn't the entire time, and he didn't at the time realize, well, that's amazing. I think it was about a month or so into us coming here that he turned to us one day and said, you know, when I asked to visit Uncle Bill and Aunt Natalie's church, I didn't mean forever. <laughs> what can you say? I also remember another time when we were really deep in the trials my daughter was laying in bed, and being older than her siblings, she was able to understand more the gravity of it all, what was going on with Lindsay. And she was struggling. She was struggling with the stress. She was struggling with whether God was real, whether he cared, whether he answered prayer. One night, as she was drifting off to sleep, she heard a voice whisper to her heart, one simple word, believe. And trembling yet peaceful at the same time, which seems to go hand in hand with when God shows up. She knew at once it was him and that he had specifically reached out to her to demonstrate that he was real and that he did hear her. And she can carry that testimony with her the rest of her life. Now, up until this point, I've mentioned both of my son's names, but haven't mentioned my daughter's, and we love all their names. We love all our kids. That would be horrible to say otherwise. And we love that basically together, Joshua and Elijah means the Lord is, or Yahweh is my God and my salvation. But I haven't mentioned my daughter's name, and as I have been reflecting while putting together this message, on all that has happened in the nearly 11 years since she has been born, I even see God's power and his sufficient grace for our lives, specifically in her name, Grace Elizabeth. Grace means the love and mercy freely given by God, or put more simply, God's unmerited or undeserved favor. And Elizabeth means my God is abundance. We had no idea what was going to happen over the next 11 years after she was born when we chose that name. We had no idea they would be filled with struggle 
and illness. And yet I have no doubt that God had a hand in that name's choosing to give us a constant reminder that his freely given love and mercy would be with us in abundance when we needed it most. And it will be again in the future. It has been true for me. It is true for all of us who are in Christ. And so with Paul, we can confidently say, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. So what about the future? Is it possible for Lindsay's cancer to come back? Yeah. Is it possible for us to deal with mental health issues again? Yeah. Is it possible that there's an even worse trial in our future? And my goodness, look outside at our world today. Yeah, it's possible. But praise God, we've seen a year and a half of peace. Lindsay is healthy both mentally and physically. All tests have come back clear. Our family and relationships are restored We have been abundantly blessed in the aftermath of our trials. For that, what else can we say but thank you, Lord? And yet, I have seen physical health, mental health, money, stability, and security disappear like that. in the blink of an eye. So I'm not going to kid myself into thinking that we have seen the end of suffering in this life. Paul certainly didn't. After everything he went through, that laundry list of hardship, he still had house arrest to look forward to in Rome. And eventually, he was beheaded. He still suffered after the thorn in the flesh experience. Now, do I hope for more trials and suffering so I can see God's power again? No. No. Will I pray in the midst of whatever trouble comes our way? Please, God, another. Absolutely not. No. Remember, Paul prayed three times for his affliction to be removed. He didn't want to suffer. Yet I know, just as Paul did, that even if his suffering on this earth never ended, and for him, pretty much it never did, there was still the hope of eternity with Christ ahead of him. Amen? When Paul said to die is gain, he said it with all sincerity, because he knew what his future held, and so do we who are in Christ. We know that one day our suffering will be over. We know there will be no more tears, no more death, no more pain or sickness because we will be with Christ. Do you have this hope? Do you have this assurance? Your trial may or may not be the result of something that you've done personally. It may not be the result of sin, but rest assured, death, sickness, and pain all came into this world because of sin. And the deserved punishment for that sin is not only death here, but eternal punishment in hell. 
And yet, as the word testifies, though death, both physical and spiritual, came through the sin of man, life comes through Christ. Here, we see in the cross the greatest example of God's sufficient grace and his power made perfect in weakness. Jesus humbled himself to become a man, to share in our weaknesses. In weakness, he was beaten, whipped, and mocked. In weakness, he carried his own cross. In weakness, he had nails driven into his feet and his wrists. In weakness, he wore a sharp crown of thorns. In weakness, he suffered on that cross and shed his blood, and in weakness, he gave up his own life and died and was buried in a tomb. You know all this. I know all this. Do we understand the depth of that? Though Jesus had every right and all the power in the universe to end his own suffering, remove himself from the cross, and destroy his enemies, he willingly gave up those rights, forsook that power, and chose to remain in utter agony and shame for his enemies. He chose to take the full wrath of his Father against sin in every person on this earth. He chose to take the punishment we deserve for breaking God's law upon himself because he loved us. Glory to God, he remained in weakness on that cross. And yet, in that weakness, the power of God was displayed in that Jesus' sacrifice nailed each and every one of our sins onto that cross. God's power was displayed in that through the blood of Christ, the irredeemable could be redeemed. God's power was on display as the stone of the tomb was rolled away and Christ rose, conquering death itself. And now, God's power is on display in the moment that we, as broken and weak sinners, fall to our knees in repentance and faith. And he saves us from the wrath, saves us from the punishment of our sin. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. It is in the forgiveness of ruined sinners that we see in action. My grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, if we repent of our sin and believe in Christ's finished work on the cross, and that he rose again to conquer the grave, there is no guarantee that our physical or mental suffering will end in this life. Don't let those prosperity, health, and wealth preachers fool you. In fact, it may be just the opposite. Things could stay the same. Things could get worse. And if we know anything about prophecy, it's going to get worse. But as the Apostle Peter writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 
and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept for you in heaven, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you rejoice greatly, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Rest assured, though it may seem hard to see at times, God's grace is sufficient. His power is perfect, even in weakness, and because of that, we can trust him with our lives both now and in eternity. We can give him praise and we can be encouraged. And may I just add one thing? Perhaps it's time for us as Christians to go against the flow and follow Paul's example, to open up, talk, and even go so far as to boast about our weaknesses instead of trying to show our strength, instead of putting on a good face, to be real with each other and with others who don't know Christ and show them just how faithful and amazing Jesus is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to look into your amazing grace and your incredible power. Lord, though we don't pray for trials, they will come because of the world we live in. Sometimes you work miracles. Sometimes you heal. Sometimes you restore, and we praise you for those times. But sometimes our suffering won't end. And we ask that no matter what our situation, you would help us to have faith in you, to carry us when we cannot walk, to sustain us when we can go no further, and to bring us peace, whether now or in eternity. Help us to remember and to tell others that if we have Jesus, we have a hope and a future. Use our situations and our trials, Lord, as testimony to your faithfulness and your power to save. And through them, may your name be glorified and your kingdom furthered. In Jesus' name, amen.